Section 4 of Old New York by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nancy Halper. Section 4. False Dawn. Chapter 4. Louis Racy stood on a projecting rock and surveyed the sublime spectacle of Mont Blanc. It was a brilliant August day, and the air at that height was already so sharp that he had had to put on his fur-lined police. Behind him, at a respectful distance, was the traveling servant who, at a signal, had brought it up to him. Below, in the bend of the mountain road, stood the light and elegant carriage which had carried him thus far on his travels. Scarcely more than a year had passed since he had waved a farewell to New York from the deck of the packet ship headed down the bay. Yet to the young man confidently facing Mont Blanc, nothing seemed left in him of that fluid and insubstantial being, the former Louis Racy, save a lurking and abeyant fear of Mr. Racy Sr. Even that, however, was so attenuated by distance and time, so far sunk below the horizon, and anchored on the far side of the globe, that it stirred in its sleep only when a handsomely folded and wafered letter in his parents' writing was handed out across the desk of some continental counting-house. Mr. Racy Sr. did not write often, and when he did it was in a bland and stilted strain. He felt at a disadvantage on paper, and his natural sarcasm was swamped in the rolling periods which it cost him hours of labor to bring forth so that the dreaded quality lurked for his son only in the curve of certain letters, and in a positively awful way of writing out, at full length, the word Esquire. It was not that Lewis had broken with all the memories of his past of a year ago. Many still lingered in him, or rather had been transferred to the new man he had become, as, for instance, his tenderness for Tricia Kent, which somewhat to his surprise had obstinately resisted all the assaults of English keepsake beauties and almond-eyed ouries of the East. It startled him, at times, to find Trichy's short, dusky face, with its round forehead, the widely spaced eyes, and the high cheekbones, starting out at him suddenly in the street of some legendary town, or in a landscape of languid beauty, just as he had now and again been arrested in an exotic garden by the very scent of the verbena under the veranda at home. His travels had confirmed rather than weakened the family view of Trichy's plainness. She could not be made to fit into any of the patterns of female beauty so far submitted to him. Yet there she was, ensconced in his new heart and mind as deeply as in the old. Though her kisses seemed less vivid, and the peculiar rough notes of her voice hardly reached him, Sometimes, half irritably, he said to himself that with an effort he could disperse her once for all. Yet she lived on in him, unseen yet ineffaceable, like the image on a daguerreotype plate, no less there because so often invisible. To the new Lewis, however, the whole business was less important than he had once thought it. His suddenly acquired maturity made Trichy seem a petted child rather than the guide the Beatrice he had once considered her, and he promised himself, with an elderly smile, that as soon as he got to Italy 
he would write her the long letter for which he was now considerably in her debt. His travels had first carried him to England. There he spent some weeks in collecting letters and recommendations for his tour, in purchasing his traveling carriage and its numerous appurtenances, and in driving in it from cathedral town to storied castle, omitting nothing from Abbotsford to Kenilworth, which deserved the attention of a cultivated mind. From England he crossed to Calais, moving slowly southwards to the Mediterranean, and there, taking ship for the Piraeus, he plunged into pure romance, and the tourist became a jour. It was the East which had made him into a new Lewis Racy, the East so squalid and splendid, so pestilent and so poetic, so full of knavery and romance, and fleas and nightingales, and so different, alike in its glories and its dirt, from what his studious youth had dreamed. After Smyrna and the bazaars, after Damascus and Palmyra, the Acropolis, Mytilene and Sunium, what could be left in his mind of Canal Street and the lawn above the Sound? Even the mosquitoes, which seemed at first the only connecting link, were different, because he fought with them in scenes so different and a young gentleman who had journeyed across the desert in Arabian dress, slept under goat's hair tents, been attacked by robbers in the Peloponnesus, and despoiled by his own escort at Baalbek, and by customs officials everywhere, could not but look with a smile on the terrors that walk New York and the Hudson River. Encased in security and monotony, that other Lewis Racy, when his little figure bobbed up to the surface, seemed like a newborn babe preserved in alcohol. Even Mr. Racy Sr.'s thunders were now no more than the far-off murmur of summer lightning on a perfect evening. Had Mr. Racy ever really frightened Lewis? Why, now he was not even frightened by Mont Blanc. He was still gazing with a sense of easy equality at its awful pinnacles when another traveling carriage paused near his own and a young man eagerly jumping from it, and also followed by a servant with a cloak, began to mount the slope. Lewis at once recognized the carriage, and the light-springing figure of the young man in his blue coat and swelling stock, and the scar slightly distorting his handsome and eloquent mouth. It was the Englishman who had arrived at the Montanvert Inn the night before with a valet, a guide, and such a cargo of books, maps, and sketching materials as threatened to overshadow even Lewis's outfit. Lewis, at first, had not been greatly drawn to the newcomer, who, seated aloof in the dining room, seemed not to see his fellow traveler. The truth was that Lewis was dying for a little conversation. His astonishing experiences were so tightly packed in him with no outlet save the meager trickle of his nightly diary, that he felt they would soon melt into the vague blur of other people's travels, unless he could give them fresh reality by talking them over. And the stranger with the deep blue eyes that matched his coat, the scarred cheek and eloquent lip, seemed to Lewis a worthy listener. The Englishman appeared to think otherwise. He preserved an air of moody abstraction, which Lewis's vanity imagined him to have put on as the gods becloud themselves for their secret errands. And the curtness of his good night was, Lewis flattered himself, 
surpassed only by the young New Yorkers. But today all was different. The stranger advanced affably, raised his hat from his tossed statue-like hair, and inquired with a smile, Are you by any chance interested in the form of cirrus clouds? His voice was as sweet as his smile, and the two were reinforced by a glance so winning that it made the odd question seem not only pertinent, but natural. Lewis, though surprised, was not disconcerted. He merely colored with the unwanted sense of his ignorance, and replied ingenuously, I believe, sir, I am interested in everything. A noble answer, cried the other, and held out his hand. But I must add, Lewis continued with courageous honesty, that I have never as yet had occasion to occupy myself particularly with the forms of cirrus clouds. His companion looked at him merrily. That, he said, is no reason why you shouldn't begin to do so now. To which Lewis as merrily agreed. For in order to be interested in things, the other continued more gravely, it is only necessary to see them. And I believe I am not wrong in saying that you are one of the privileged beings to whom the seeing eye has been given. Lewis blushed his agreement, and his interlocutor continued. You are one of those who has been on the road to Damascus. On the road? I've been to the place itself, the wanderer exclaimed, bursting with the particulars of his travels, and then blushed more deeply at the perception that the other's use of the name had of course been figurative. The young Englishman's face lit up. You've been to Damascus, literally been there yourself. But that may be almost as interesting, in its quite different way, as the formation of clouds or lichens. For the present, he continued with a gesture toward the mountain, I must devote myself to the extremely inadequate rendering of some of these delicate aiguilles, a bit of drudgery not likely to interest you in the face of so sublime a scene. But perhaps this evening, if, as I think, we are staying in the same inn, you will give me a few minutes of your society, and tell me something of your travels. My father, he added with his engaging smile, has had packed with my paintbrushes a few bottles of a wholly trustworthy Madeira, and if you will favor me with your company at dinner, he signed to his servant to undo the sketching materials, spread his cloak on the rock, and was already lost in his task as Lewis descended to the carriage. The Madeira proved as trustworthy as his host had promised. Perhaps it was its exceptional quality which threw such a golden luster over the dinner, unless it were rather the conversation of the blue-eyed Englishman, which made Lewis Racy, always a small drinker, feel that in his company every drop was nectar. When Lewis joined his host, it had been with the secret hope of at last being able to talk. But when the evening was over, and they kept it up to the small hours, he perceived that he had chiefly listened. Yet there had been no sense of suppression, of thwarted volubility. He had been given all the openings he wanted. Only, whenever he produced a little fact, it was instantly overflowed by the other's imagination, till it burned like a dull pebble tossed into a rushing stream. For whatever Lewis said was seen by his companion from a new angle, and suggested a new train of thought. Each commonplace item of experience became a many-faceted crystal flashing with unexpected fires. 
the young Englishman's mind moved in a world of associations and references far more richly peopled than Lewis's, but his eager communicativeness, his directness of speech and manner, instantly opened its gates to the simpler youth. It was certainly not the Madeira which sped the hours and flooded them with magic, but the magic gave the Madeira, excellent and reputed of its kind, as Lewis afterward learned, a taste no other vintage was to have for him. Oh, but we must meet again in Italy. There are many things there that I could perhaps help you to see, the young Englishman declared, as they swore eternal friendship on the stairs of the sleeping inn. End of section four. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.